Hello, and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gubar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. Thanks for joining us today for the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast. Today we have an interview with Larry Nordby. Um, He's a former NPS archaeologist. He spent part of his career at Mesa Verde and then part of it at the regional office and was the regional archaeologist for uh, the Intermountain region, which stretches from Arizona up to Montana. Um, So we'll be discussing a whole range of um, archaeology topics and historic preservation topics with Larry. Um, As January is National Mentoring Month, we'll also start with... um, And aside from Matt, about uh, Larry as a mentor, and um, then we'll discuss a little bit about uh, Larry's um, impact on us as uh, as we go forward. We're talking to Larry Nordby today, who is a really interesting person and a really well-known archaeologist in the National Park Service. I've been lucky enough over my career to uh, have Larry as a mentor, and I've learned a lot about what I know. about Park Service archaeology and the study of prehistoric architecture from Larry. What I think is interesting about uh, mentors is that Larry, in turn, learned uh, a lot of what he knew uh, or knows about archaeology from uh, other National Park Service archaeologists that came before him. So there's this lineage, really from the 1930s until now, Uh, represented by all of these different and interesting people who have uh, contributed to our knowledge of Park Service archaeology. So it really connects back to some of the other discussions that we've had um, where we've talked about historic preservation and how uh, Park Service archaeologists working in the field today have learned uh, from the mistakes and the successes of the people that came before them. Matt Gubard and Charlotte Hart. We're here with Larry Norby, who is a retired research archaeologist from Mesa Verde. Hey, Larry. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So I, I should say before we start, um, Larry, we've known each other for, oh gosh, probably 10 years. And um, we met uh, many years ago when you were on a project at Tonto National Monument. And uh, you've been a big influence on me. Uh, you're a cliff dwelling guy. Uh, you spend a lot of time studying cliff dwellings, and that's kind of my focus as well. So I've learned a lot from you over the years, and um, I'm really excited that that you're talking to us today about cliff dwellings. So again, thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. So it's nice to be with you. So you uh, have been retired for. A number of years, but while you were working, you were a research archaeologist for the National Park Service. Um, there are not many research archaeologists left anymore. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that job entailed? Well, I started out as a temporary survey archaeologist uh, with the National Park Service's Southwest Regional Office in Santa Fe and moved through the uh, research archaeologist position there at that point and became the regional archaeologist and had done so by about 1993. At that time I moved to Mesa Verde and my title was research archaeologist there. Uh, I had done graduate work at the University of Colorado in the late 60s and early 70s and so this new job was very exciting to me. My job at Mesa Verde was to establish a new research program that focused on the cliff dwellings which had gradually degraded because not enough uh, funding had been available to either pursue more current research objectives or to preserve the ruins. So my job as a research archaeologist became uh, to raise money and create partnerships using whatever sources I could. Uh, Park management and both archaeologists and non-archaeologists at the park were very supportive of the effort. And money came from traditional in-house project requests as well as two new funding sources, the Vanishing Treasures Program that the Park Service had and the Save America's Treasures Program that was initiated under the Clinton presidency. Other funds were sought from competitive grants programs, for example, 
the state of Colorado had a historic preservation fund with a competitive grants program, and I wanted to leverage all these various funding sources, matching them with federal dollars. So my job then became marketing the program to donors and colleges, most specifically Fort Lewis College in Durango. And uh, some of the examples of the donors included the Tauk Travel Foundation and the World Monuments Fund. And the Center for Southwest Studies at Fort Lewis was a source for some of the students that we helped train. And they wanted to work on the cliff dwellings also, once again, using grant funds. So the target for this was about 600 cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde, uh, which ranged only from a few rooms in size up to mega villages like Cliff Palace and Spruce Tree House, which either, each of which has over 100 rooms. We hoped that we could meet the preservation documentation needs of about 150 of these sites over a 10-year period. I think we succeeded at that because of the staff that we were able to put together. And uh, our staff over that several-year period was uh, 50 to 60 people, but only during the summer field season. Winters were spent, spent planning and preparing funding proposals. So that was sort of the context for the job, but what I was hoping to accomplish was to create an interdisciplinary research program that proactively linked uh, archaeology with historic architecture, uh, various conservation disciplines such as site stabilization, making stone and mortar repairs, uh, conducting plaster documentation, preservation studies, using tree ring studies, um, civil engineering, uh, and history was an important component because early archaeologists produced notes, photos, and maps, although most of them lacked detail and organization of those records was inconsistent and somehow in, inadequate because of the time they were collected. Also, a lot of them were from museums that were elsewhere. That it, uh, and This data was collected a long time before there was even a National Park Service sometimes. So um, we had to scurry around and try and find those things. So. To connect uh, these various kinds of study or work required a database that would somehow link all these various interests. So we needed to staff up with database designers and computer draftspersons as well as to utilize non-governmental uh, subject matter experts by contract. Um, and because numerous cliff dwellings are difficult to get into, a couple of the teams of staff members had to be trained in rock climbing, rappelling, and that kind of thing. And we needed to find a workspace and get new staff and get new computers and vehicles. And everybody at Mesa Verde bought into this idea, and they were great. So during that period, we uh, also carried out cliff-dwelling projects at a lot of other parks. We went to Navajo National Monument, Hovenweep, Gila Cliff Dwellings, Canyonlands, Canyon to Shea National Monuments, and others, and we did some projects for other federal land managing agencies, such as the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management. So the outcome of this was um, be had become known as the Archaeological Site Conservation Program by the time we were done. And uh, my job involved uh, working in the field on these cliff dwellings, uh, conducting administrative duties, hiring, training identifying support needs. I had an administrative assistant that helped with a lot of that part of it. But the main thrust of it was to develop a database that linked these various professions together. And the idea was that collaborators would put material in using a scripted set of observations, and then they would be able to draw out the information that they needed. So it had to do with sort of spending some design work, making sure that uh, the needs of these various collaborating professionals would be net, met. And uh, I think that's about it in terms of the description. That's quite a lot. <laughs> well, it seemed like it was at the time, too. But I had a lot of really talented people came into the Park Service during this time period, and they were able to help out quite a bit. In fact, I was helping them sometimes. So That, that fits really nicely with some of the other episodes, um, because we've talked so far a lot about uh, interdisciplinary work and kind of the importance of having people with different perspectives on resources working together. Um, but we've also spent a little bit of time talking about 
uh, how important it is to standardize the information that gets collected. Um, so it, I think, you know, what you were doing then is, is really a kind of a perfect example. And in fact, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, has, has been a big influence on uh, me, but I also I think a lot of archaeologists in the Southwest, you, um, that is kind of how we try to do business today. I think we, we look at that model and, and try to replicate it as best as, as we can. Well, it's good to know that somebody is carrying on that that those objectives because I I feel they're pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, my next question, you you kind of touched on this, but but maybe if we could get into a little more detail, um, we've talked a lot in previous episodes also about historic preservation, uh, and we've talked about what it is and a little bit about how it's done. Uh, and even a little bit about the history of it uh, in the U.S. But can you talk uh, to the listeners a little bit about how um, some of the research objectives that that you spoke about uh, previously can help archaeologists and resource managers make good decisions uh, about where and how to conduct preservation treatments? Well, uh in my mind, historic preservation is more than simply repairing the walls or the other physical manifestations of the sites. It's really about preserving scientific and heritage values inherent in the remains. We need to know what's important. If you launched into heavy-handed historic preservation measures without some forethought, it's really embracing a process that can transform the resources into something that may have never been there. And that's not really historic preservation at all, in my opinion. It's just a process of semi-controlled change. I think of it as preservation paradox. The more the the, the thought goes towards uh, what is important at each site, the more likely you are to get close to historic preservation goals. So documenting what remains on the ground is as important as making the physical repairs to the walls because it identifies what is the most important. Sort of an example of what I mean is making repairs with modern materials. If you use cement to repair a masonry wall, it'll stand up for a long time, but is it really preservation when the original walls were made of mud and stone? What gets lost when that decision to use modern material gets made? Another example is this. For safety and other educational and interpretive purposes, um, ancient pedestrian traffic flow through some cliff dwellings is lost by creating new walls or openings when previously there were none. In many cases, these efforts are necessary, but is it really preservation in the purest sense? Probably not. Many of the biggest cliff dwellings were excavated prior to the development of modern archaeological and mapping techniques, and uh, sometimes these were done over a century ago, so that research, especially of early Archaeological site stabilization records is necessary to pinpoint the nature of modern alterations before the original character of the site is lost to people who will visit these places in the next hundred years or beyond. So in terms of the way I think about it, records research is the first step in modern preservation work. It's a matter of getting into the files, if you can find them, and uh, figure out which parts of the site are original and which have resulted from our attempts to stabilize the site. From this, we can assess the original characteristics of a site or wall or room or derive a better understanding of how it was originally built and why. If we don't do that, everything is just the same. So you have to figure out what uh, what we did to change the site. And a lot of times those records are not adequate. Uh, the next stage after you do that records research is to document and figure out which original materials remain and what the remains tell us about ancient life in the cliff dwelling. It also identifies what the current threats are to that original material and why it's important. And attempts to tailor make the best rest of, uh, remedy to uh, resolve a particular problem. Is an area breaking down because of visitor traffic, rodent burrowing, groundwater, moisture, wind-borne wind precipitation, or some other factor. And what do we do about it? If a location within a site can't be saved, what should we do? 
as the documentation occurs, it creates a file structure that then can be used to organize all these various facts about the place. Architecture is multi-scalar. It consists of little things which combine to form bigger things and which combine to form even bigger things. So the idea is to organize your file structure in such a way that you can target which of these entities you want to look at. Uh, so you might have individual stones. You might interest, be interested in that. And the way that most technicians who are now working on their uh, sites, uh, the way their brains operate, is they want to know stuff about specific locations within the site. In other words, a room or an open space or something like that. Um, but we want to make sure that we think about these things from an overall perspective so we don't get too focused and at the same time have a method for expanding out of that focus. Um, and then we we want to uh, perpetuate this knowledge in the file structure that exists. So that's kind of the goal for that part of it. Once we make an assessment of the prior documentation, then we augment that with new information on the current form function of the site and the deterioration agents that are operational there, we can get specialists in that determine what best the best procedures might be for preserving the physical materials and what the physical materials can actually tell us. So the procedures usually in, involve intensive photographic and other methods of graphic documentation, completing detailed forms when needed, and may extend up through making major wall repairs. Along the way, certain kinds of specialized studies can include plaster assessment and assessment of any decorations that are on that plaster, conducting tree ring studies, uh, making descriptions of wood use, and roof construction, that kind of thing. The point, though, is that we will know what is gained, what is preserved, and what is lost during these various processes. Whenever possible, the goal is to carry out preservation strategies that can either have lesser impact or constitute a reversible process. In other words, a lot of the problems that have existed with past work is that it was too heavy-handed. We used cement to build things uh, to repair walls. Sometimes you need to do that, and many places in the Southwest are still present because somebody did do that long ago. But now the goals have changed to something where, well, when the, if this doesn't work, what are you going to do to get rid of it? This needs to be a reversible process. Uh, whatever you do in terms of the preservation work. And of course, uh, the less, lesser of all evils and the lef, lesser of impact uh, to these sites is probably the documentation part of it. So in practice, uh, the work consists of looking at lots of walls and trying to decode how they were built. If possible, we can use laser scans, which is a technology that's become available over the last oh, 10 or 15 years or so, but otherwise, uh, we may just use photographic montages of walls. But the observations that we collect are usually structured. We're not in, it's real easy to come up with a lot of idiosyncratic observations about individual walls that don't really take you anywhere um, because people left out something else that was more important. That's the reason why we use the forms. So uh, in the in cliff dwellings, the wall surfaces are pretty complex. There's plaster with and without ancient decoration, with and without historical inscriptions left by early explorers. There's often more than one layer of plaster or other kind of surface finish. Individual building stones can be shaped by hammering or some other method or left unshaped. Some walls are chinked with chinking stones and only parts of walls are chinked with chinking stones. Well, if people aren't, don't have structure, they can't record all this information. There are beam socket holes in the wall, some of which were manufactured and some of which were retrofitted onto the wall. There are doorways that were moved and remodeled. Um, each of these various events leaves evidence of how people used the houses that they lived in. And when they got fed up with their neighbors or relatives or one of the, or someone moved in that was new and was related to them, they needed to graft on a new room suite. So these are all sort of human interest stories to me. And they taken all together, these events that are recorded in the walls combined to form a pretty fascinating tapestry that is awaiting to be unraveled and decoded. 
open sites simply don't have that kind of information in, in the main. So preservation process is one which has to assess what kind of natural imp, uh, processes operate to destroy the damage on these previous listed kinds of information and what we're going to do about it. So it sounds like it's the it's kind of the structure and the organization of all the information that's collected that allows us to see patterns and then hopefully uh, interpret interpret the site, which is maybe a way of kind of getting at, at, at meaning that can then sort of inform what we want to preserve or, or how we want to preserve it. Yeah, that, that's true. I think probably the most fundamental thing that uh, people ask about usually has to do with how many people lived here. And the answer to that question is probably not so different than how many people lived in an individual house or in a, in a neighborhood in our residences. Um, the answer to that is you have to count the households. The only way you can count the households is to really spend some time thinking about, well, how did this place develop? Um, and it uh, works pretty well if you do that, and it changes how you think of things. In terms of a lot of the rooms, some of the big cliff dwellings, they didn't live in all of those rooms at once. Some of them were converted into storage rooms after they were lived in first, and so people lived elsewhere. So it's kind of difficult. You have to think about a lot of factors, and if you don't record all this information in, with specificity, you don't ever get down to a really good answer to that question of how many people lived here. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that question um, because I've gotten that trail that question on the trail a lot um, about how many people lived here. Some very basic questions, and I think what's hidden to the um, to the average visitor to a National Park Service site um, is how much time goes into the research and all those other logistical um, elements that you're mentioning. Like Matt and I have talked um, very briefly on a previous episode about how important documentation is and, and how sometimes we're not working with the best historical documentation. Um, but you also mentioned a lot of um, aspects of your position that required, um, uh, that were essentially project management. You know, all those. Uh, so I was wondering, um, do you have an idea, looking back, of how much of your time you spent um, doing project management and documentation, things that, that our listeners might not think of as, as direct research um, in your position? Uh, that's a fair question. In the wintertime, of course, a lot of it goes to project management. Um, you're writing proposals. You're, you're seeking money, of course. That's the number one thing. And you're also figuring out which which projects um, require external support because we don't the agency Park Service um, didn't have any in-house specialists in those areas. So you're making a decision about or is it easier to go find somebody who has this skill set outside the service, or are you going to try and staff up to carry out this particular function? Um, that's yeah. part of it. Plus, you need to think about the number one thing for that is repelling and getting into some of these difficult places, getting in and out. Um, so you have to have the equipment to do that. You have to schedule training. That means since that doesn't exist in every park, you need to connect with other parks to make sure that happens. So it's a matter of forging these partnerships for the in the main. And, and in that instance, having very specialized um repellers who don't, you know, do more harm than good when they're repelling down and hit a wall, right? Yeah, that's great. That That's true. The number one thing, though, is you you have to train them in first aid, you know. How do you, right. how do you, how do you deal with the injuries in the backcountry? You're going to have some. You know, you've got a staff of 50 people out there. Um, they're a ways from help. So, yeah. you know, it's some stuff that's as simple as radio contact with other emergency responders, that kind of thing, for those types of things. So that's what you work on in, in the winter, and then as you come out of the winter, you're headed into that, or you're writing. Um, when you actually get online, though, I always wanted to be in field with staff, and one of the best parts of it for me was there's sort of a natural built-in team-building enterprise when you go to repelling training with your with your staff. And I always looked forward to that time because I could be out there actually with them. They'd have to count on me as somebody who was going to help them get in and out of the places or get what we figure out what we were going to do when we got there. 
scheduling, um, all of those things are part of what you end up doing. Um, during the field season, uh, especially if we were working away from the park, I would usually run those crews, not always, um, but I would usually run those cart crews. And you're, I always believed in putting the people as close to the resources I could, which meant camping. Yeah. So if you're going to camp with people out there, you have to get a cook because you're expecting them to work uh, a 10-hour day. It's too much to expect them to work a 10-hour day out there each day and then to come home and figure out how they're going to eat that night. So we had field camps uh, that uh, on many of the jobs that we did that were outside the park especially. And uh, the best part about that is everybody really builds these are relationships that you don't ever forget. They're friendships that last a lifetime. And that just makes the work go, you know, so much better and the research so much more in depth. Uh, yeah, it does. And you can, they'll ask you questions. If you're not there, you can't answer those questions. So right. you need to be out there with the, with the folks and stuff. And then side right. note, the best part of it anyway. Well, we you know we're focused we're focused on cliff dwellings uh, in part I think because everybody loves cliff dwellings. Um, maybe not everybody, but I think most <laughs> people probably love cliff dwellings. And certainly, if you look back in the history, uh, the the American public seems to have this kind of ongoing fascination with cliff dwellings for at least the last 150 years. I mean, you see information about cliff dwellings and photographs show up in newspaper articles from the 1860s and 70s, probably, maybe, right? Yeah, right. And so, uh, in your opinion, Larry, why do you think cliff dwellings are so special? What what do you think it is about them that captures the public's imagination? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of different factors, but the primary one is the degree of preservation that many of them have sets them apart and some of it also is how difficult they are to get to like we were just talking about the need to use ropes and stuff to get into a few uh that's not the case with all of them but um once you people feel like they had to work to get to a place um that automatically elevates them in their minds i think uh with respect to the preservation factor uh, it's much easier to visualize and to relate to cliff dwellings as in the human experience. Uh, you get in there, and there's there's small units. There's kind of an intimate setting a lot of times, and people can start to see them as homes, residences, small scale villages, and that's a that is a scale that we can connect with because we have families, and the families are probably of comparable size, although. Some cliff dwellings that are larger probably represent the residences of extended families um, or maybe lineages or clans. So people today have that same scale of interaction probably. Uh, so they're, they think about them in the same sense as they think about reaching those people from ancient households. Um, so people try to make a transference back in time um, and can start to appreciate it a little bit more. Uh, a good example is, you know, Asian people had dogs as pets. I mean, you all have dogs, maybe. I have a dog, uh, my we wife do. and I, and I don't know what we'd do without our dog. These people loved their dogs, and they had turkeys too. They loved their pets the same way as we do. And it's a different kind of uh, intensity of the human experience when you stop and think about it like that. You have to solve problems in the uh, situation, you know, where you you brick up a, um, people uh, during ancient times, blocked off, off doorways. Maybe they didn't like that particular relative. The point is, they leave tangible evidence of all of these choices um, if you stop to think about them. There's no place else that does that, in my experience, in the, in the human archaeological record. So, um, I think that's why people really like them. So, what this leads to is, to my way of thinking, a being in a special place or having 
experience the sense of discovery to get in to places like that. And uh, people who really care about them, um, they just, they have a, there's just, you come around the corner, here's a cliff dwelling. Gee, I didn't know that was there, but you can be in it. Not much has happened there since 1300 or whenever the people left there. Um, so you you have the opportunity to sort of experience it in a pristine way in the same sense that they do. You don't get that in an open, open site. So people have love affairs with uh, cliff dwellings. Uh, a lot of times you know, early explorers came into these places. They wrote their names with bullet lead on walls uh, to record them. Uh, various biblical sayings occasionally are incised on walls or written in bullet lead on walls and cliff dwellings. Not that we like that nowadays, but it's a record of who was once there. Uh, for example, at Casa Grande, there's a place where um, when they were doing the enabling legislation to set up Casa Grande back in Washington, they were having a conversation. Part of the congressional record relates of a trapper who was uh, uh, living in the area, and there's a reference to him in the in the enabling legislation, and somebody said, "Well, yeah, this guy lived here long ago," and and so, unless you know something about the legislation, you don't know that that's happened. You go out there and you're looking, and at Casa Grande in particular, there was a photographic class that during the 80s and 90s went out and photographed the walls and script strips, and part of what they were trying to capture was these um, signatures. And uh, when J.W. Fuchs, who was one of the early archaeologists, he knew the enabling legislation. He went out and looked for that inscription. He could not find it anywhere. But he referenced it in his in his writings. And so when I'm going through to consolidate the records research for Casa Grande, I find a photograph that has this inscription on it by this person who was referenced sort of a long lost person who was, was important to the creation of Casa Grande. That's the kind of thing, if you combine all of these uh, observations together, that you learn. Even though Casa Grande is not a cliff dwelling, we're studying the architecture there as, as closely as we study cliff dwellings. So that's the kind of thing that is produced when you when you spend the time looking at this. Sort of a human interest part of it, I think, is very high with, this, with uh, architectural uh, archaeological sites. It's difficult to find elsewhere. I, I think there's an interesting connection with with a few things that you mentioned earlier in the interview and, and this idea of there being a connection with the past and how our management decisions uh, will affect that. So the way that we treat these sites and the way that we maintain that sort of tangible representation of what happened there in the past has a lot to do with the way that people in the future will experience those places and, and invariably what they'll learn about them. So uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what else to say about that other than it's, it's an interesting connection and it's something that I know that Park Service archaeologists think a lot about, how, how uh, what we do at the sites will affect what people learn about them and, and how people experience them in the future. Yeah, that's correct. If somebody would have come in and decided they needed to replaster the wall at Casa Grande, as part of a preservation measure, so they stick a bunch of plaster up there, away goes the inscriptions. You don't get to see that unless it's recorded first. And if you're, you jump to the, to the end game really quick there, which is preserving the site without very much forethought, uh, you impact our ability to know kind of what happened at that place. So I think part of what we're talking about here is to make sure that we eliminate those those errors uh, instead of compounding them. Right. Well, I so I, I don't know what your experience has been over the years, but certainly working at Montezuma Castle, I I get uh I get a lot of interpretations from visitors and often they'll they'll look at the site and they'll say, well, this is what the site was used for, or this is why it was built, and and often that's based on sort of their their just their perception of what it is. They're looking at it, they're looking up at it, they're impressed. Uh, 
you know, they, they interpret it. That's kind of, I guess, what, what all of us do uh, as humans. And, and, and often, uh, one of those interpretations is that all cliff dwellings are defensive in nature, for instance. Um, so, what do you think the biggest misconception about cliff dwellings is um, in your experience studying them? I think uh, just what you mentioned is a real good example, and that is that most cliff dwellings were used for defense. I don't think most of them were used for defense. Um, I think there are some that obviously were. Montezuma's Castle is an interesting study. Even the name of it suggests castle, you know, that this is somehow a defensive refuge. And it probably, in that case, I think it's warranted because if you go up and look inside the the uh, what's there, you see that there are various view sheds as you look out through these openings there that are all different. They cover what could be considered strategic locations on the landscape below. So that's part of it, and I don't think there's any denying it. But the one thing you have to think about with cliff dwellings is what do these people do for water? Almost none of them have any water. And it doesn't necessarily make any difference whether the cliff dwelling is little or, or big in terms of room counts. If anybody gets in there, they're they're not going to have a whole lot of water usually. Sometimes there is uh, a spring in the back or something like that that probably flowed more more readily than it now does. But I think the main question is, what are people going to do there if if they get into a place like that? If they want to decide that they want to get out or have to get out. A couple of other issues that are related to this defense idea and. Allow me to understand or to state that I'm not debunking that entire idea. I'm just thinking it doesn't have much to do with most of them. Um, a lot of them, the way to think about it is this they're discovering ledges or discovering small caves or alcoves, um, and they don't really modify those localities very much in terms of the bedrock features. If a knob sticks out and means it's difficult to walk along a ledge, uh, they don't figure out how they're going to reduce that problem by knocking off the knob so that it's easier to get in and out. It's just not feasible for you to do that if you have stone tools. Um, so I think part of it has to do with just the natural location of some of these alcoves. I'm thinking about the ones at Mesa Verde that are you know, all of these 600 aren't multi-room units. There, a lot of them are 10 room units, and what they're storing up there, if those are storage rooms, is probably food. But whoever comes and goes to that cliff dwelling, whether they have access to it in, uh, in parentheses legally or not, um, they still have to go through the same problems as anyone else who wants to get in there. So those places are probably, if you are in there already. It's probably defensible, but you have to think about what people are wanting to defend. Are they worried about saving their lives or the, their families' lives, or are they worried about um, preserving their food sources, those kinds of things? Um, so the absence of water in most of them and the kinds of spaces that are in most of them and the kinds of features, in other words, location of, of holes that you can look out and see who's there, um, are a major factor. Whether or not there are walls, there's a wall built uh, probably three-quarters of the way up at Cliff, Cliff Palace on a ledge behind the ruin. This is one of the larger places at Mesa Verde, of course, and uh, that ledge has a little opening at the top, and the question there is, well, why did they leave that opening? Were they shooting arrows out at whoever was down below? Probably not, in my mind. They just want some light back there in this little low corridor, and you couldn't see what you were doing if you didn't leave some space at the top. So these are uh, some things that I think we have to think about more systematically. Uh, by the way, out of all of the cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde, although there were a couple of instances of broken bones and that kind of thing, uh, there's not anybody that was died from an arrow or anything like that, although we wouldn't necessarily see soft damage, soft tissue damage to a person. So 
but there's no places where somebody beat someone's head in at Mesa Verde during the cliff dwelling period. There are plenty of cases of violence at other locations, but cliff dwellings don't seem to be one of those places. So get, getting back to what you said um, earlier in the interview about sort of different scales uh, and understanding cliff dwellings um, on sort of a scalar level, uh, do, do you would you say that while cliff dwellings may all sort of look the same generally or, or are all built in alcoves, um, they're probably maybe all different uh, and, and the maybe not the way they were built is different, but certainly the way that they might have been used or, or um, you know, the ideas that, that, that the builders had as they were constructing them were different. And so, so maybe it's important to look at each cliff dwelling on its own as well as looking at them all collectively. I think that's the only way you can do it. I, the way I think about it is you uh, – I try and envision what the cliff dwelling – the cave look like before anybody built a house in it. Then I go to I study the abutments and the patterns in which the buildings were combined within the within the village, and I try and find out which are the first ones and whether or not there was an architectural core represented by each of these uh, dwellings, uh, buildings within the within the cliff dwelling. And so I start there. Okay, first this building was added. What's nature of that building? Almost always those places are residential or storage. As time goes on, the alcove starts to fill up with other people coming in. Maybe they were relatives, maybe they were progeny, children, who knows. But anyway, as the cliff dwelling fills up, that the thing that I find interesting about it is options uh, decrease in terms of how they're going to use that space. So if you um, look at those spaces, you can see there'll be two uh, suites of rooms that are built next to each other, but not contiguous, and there'll be a space left in between. So one of those households probably will capture that space in the dwelling, because space is at a premium inside the dwelling. So you can kind of see the evidence of those choices. Um, that's what makes it so interesting to look at them. Then at some point, what will happen is the site gets large enough and they start thinking about, or the village gets large enough, and they start thinking about, well, maybe we should have a specialty type of building. And what kind of specialty building are we going to have? Are we going to have kivas like they do in some places in the southwest? Um, or are we uh, going to have another household come in here? Because you, have to do, you can't do all of those things. The, the size of the alcove is finite, so you have to make a choice about how you're going to allocate that space. Do you want more residents, or do you plan on using a different cave for uh, ceremonial or social gatherings? Those are the types of questions that I find are so fascinating about uh, the cliff dwellings. And each one of these cliff dwellings is dimensionally different. The Ceiling is higher on some, lower on some. That means the sun comes in at different times of day. For example, at an inscription house, you have a building that was uh, four to five stories high, built on this little narrow ledge. And the way that the alcove um, was shaded as the sun moved through on the, uh, during the day was that spaces that were higher up on the cliff got more shade. So that's where they spent their time. So the down the places down low, which we obviously they were built first, but they probably weren't the primo places for carrying out the activities that they wanted to do there. So they built up high enough so they could get out of the sun. Um, those kinds of decisions are so different uh, from the way an open site is perceived. Um, the room shapes and, and cliff dwellings are odd and, and not very quadrilateral a lot of times. Sometimes they are, of course, but um, sometimes they can't be that way. Um, so I think that they're, they're just such a fascinating uh, set of decisions that there is tangible evidence at, at cliff dwellings that you have to choose how you want to live. 
So I, I think that uh, to me, that's why I never find them boring or like you, everyone's different. I don't see any two that I've ever been in that are exactly the same. Although there are some of the big ones, they have sort of a a, a very uh, similar type of E-shaped or uh, U-shaped configuration to the rooms if there's enough people in them. Spruce Tree House, a cliff dwelling at Mesa Verde National Park, is laid out in an E-shaped design that is very similar to Chaco-style uh, uh, open sites, but it occurs quite a bit later than the Chaco-style sites. So that architectural form was perpetuated in some of these uh, later cliff dwellings. There's just a lot to think about. It's uh, uh, surface textures of individual walls. You know, we talk briefly about plasters, stuff like that. Um, plasters have different textures. They have different colors. Mortars have different colors. So what does that tell us about where they're going to get the mortar and how, what kind of methods are being used to shape this material? You can find evidence that relates to those particular issues if you spend time looking for it. Um, almost every cliff dwelling I've ever been in has at least two different colors of mud that were used to set the stones. Um, that's at minimum. Sometimes uh, a different type of material was used to repair walls. Those are all things that guys working on these cliff dwellings in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, didn't think about that very much. Uh, now we do. So what we're really interested in is this sort of confluence of two factors. One is the technology that they were using to build the walls, the roofs, whatever. And the other one is social structure. How many social units were they in? Were there big ones? Were there little ones? Almost every cliff dwelling that you go into that has more than 30 rooms has some sort of public building in it to integrate uh, the residents of the cliff dwelling. Um, but you have to think about it from that perspective before you can find it or all the rooms maybe look alike. But the social context for most of them is different. So to, to, just to build off of what you said, Larry, I, I think it's really interesting to think about how some of those decisions were made. Um, who was making the decisions and, and how were they made and, and how were they ultimately uh, implemented, you know, once the decisions were made, who was in charge of sort of doing the building and the designing it. Uh, I've always thought that, that was one of the sort of interesting things about, about looking at cliff dwelling architecture. Yeah, I agree with that there. Who makes those choices about where to build and who figures out the layout, that kind of question. And how do they do that? What's the process? You know, we don't really understand that very well in terms of how it applies to cliff dwellings. Um, do they have professional architects uh, in, of a sort during ancient times? Uh, probably they, some of the buildings at Chaco, which was a little earlier than most of the cliff dwellings we're looking at, are massive buildings that you couldn't really build without a, some sort of professional expertise. Um, so how does that translate to cliff dwellings? There's sort of two trajectories the way I think of it, one is open site methods for construction and the other one is the cliff dwelling method. And we don't really know much about how these uh, structures come together if you're comparing cliff dwellings with open sites. There are, there are good comparisons that can be made, but what would be the differences between all of them? That's not necessarily well known because usually a person like me comes in, I'm a cliff dwelling specialist. I, don't, I, I know some things obviously about open site development, but they're different things than other people. And frankly, some people don't really know what to make of of the study of cliff dwellings and how they can incorporate that with their open site research. And uh, so sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work, uh, but uh, that's what makes it fascinating. The other thing that is real important about cliff dwellings is because they're well-preserved and a lot of them have roofs, or a number of them have roofs. You can study roofs uh, and roof technology and that kind of thing in a much more interesting way, and it adds that dimension of uh, a verticality that you don't have in an open site. 
a lot of open sites, all you have is the lowest 50, 60 centimeters of wall. And so the rest of it's all rubble. So when people look at that, they want to assign an abutment pattern to the walls. But when you study cliff tolling, you realize that those, those abutment patterns change from the base of the wall to the ceiling of the wall. Montezuma's Castle is an excellent example. Most of that stuff is captured. Those, those stuff that's on the main ledge there is all uh, built together and then subdivided. And then if you get up above there, so it's all bonded. Those are all bonded. If you get up above there, there's abutments going on. Um, so if you only had portion of that wall, you'd come up with a different conclusion than if you have the whole thing there. Um, also, uh, Montezuma's Castle is another good example of how roof hatches are built. You can study that, but you can also study how they how they change because some of those roof hatches are blocked off and they build a new roof hatch. Well, what does that tell you about how they were using that space and also the longevity of the cliff going? And a system that I was using for a while called sort of a, a longevity index or recycling index, which had to do with how many stones in the wall had been recycled from other locations based on those stones were uh, sooted and the overall wall was not sooted, or those individual stones were plastered and the main wall was not plastered. So it's sort of a recycling index was a way to sort of get at that. And if you were looking at that from a logical standpoint, you'd probably make the assertion that, well, late walls have better chance of being using recycled materials uh, than earlier walls. So, but you don't know. Um, insofar as they could have left that dwelling and gone elsewhere to get recycled materials from a different site, which did happen. So I think it's there's just so many fascinating dimensions of it that you just don't see if you're working open sites. One of the major things that you don't get much of in open site or in cliff dwellings that you do have a better opportunity for in open sites is uh, artifact capture. There's more artifacts in open sites, and there's usually more sediment in there. And the deposits in in uh, cliff dwellings are oftentimes churned by rodent activity, or they're very dry and dusty, and they don't give good stratigraphic information. Um, so artifacts are different, and the context for those is a little bit different in cliff dwellings than it is in open sites. So less good for cliff dwellings to do artifacts. Most of many of the those sites have were visited by early explorers who took out a lot of the materials that were there, so we don't really know context for that. Those artifacts is gone. I think one of the a couple of the um things that you've touched on with um architecture in in um cliff sites is that it's fantastic to have all of that documentation and research kind of support interpretations for visitors that, um, you know, decisions on where to put a site even, you know, is a mix of um, personal decisions and taking practical considerations into account like light and wind. Um, and I think that sometimes even just that kind of connection that, that these were people like us, um, can be hard to get to for visitors, and uh, and being able to have that there is um, is like I said, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think of it as is real key to be able to give them that information, and also one source of that information is to you talk to native populations about the place, and uh, what they will tell you is material that is very uh, supplemental and can't be left out when you're evaluating these structures, if they have an association with place. Definitely. I had a, a guy on one of my crews that uh, he had been, the people who had lived at this place were his, his, his ancestors. And they actually had a uh, story of connection between his modern day Pueblo and what happened at that site. And there is tangible evidence of what he was talking about if you go to that site. 
a lot of times it's in images that are left on the on the masonry or on the walls or on the alcove face. Um, and it really helps fill in a lot of things and it makes it quite real for me uh, when I go to those places. So That's great. Yeah, it's an excellent example of of uh, how non-destructive research can be used to connect with with modern native populations and get something that you can't get by not visiting with the native population. So, yeah, there there's a lot of information on cliff dwellings out there, uh, and a lot of it is tactical information. So it can be maybe a little dry and, and boring for people who aren't archaeologists to kind of wade through. Do you have uh, a recommendation for any of the listeners that, that uh, for a good book that is easy to read that talks about cliff dwellings? Um, yes. Uh, of course, there's plenty of archaeological site reports that are floating around. Uh, on cliff dwelling research, There's a number of them for sale at the Mesa Verde bookstore, for example, uh, but and other bookstores. But the type of book you're asking about um, is, from my perspective, hands down the best one that I know of is called The Cliff Dwelling Speak, and it was written by uh, Beth and Bill Sagstetter, and it was published in 2010. They have a very... Um, user-friendly approach to this. It's based on years of visiting um, them. Uh, one of the authors, Bill Sagstetter, was, he was a doctor and he was flying over Mexico and his plane crashed. And so he lived among people. He got out of the crash, but he couldn't get out of the, uh, the region. So he lived among people who lived in cliff dwellings for a year or two. And so he was piqued by these, or his curiosity was piqued is more appropriate, I guess, but uh, by how people were actually using these cliff dwellings. And there is a, a wonderful cliff dwelling tradition that extends across the border into northern Mexico. Um, and he talks about plenty of places, he and his wife, that they have visited in the, in the United States. They always try and make it into sort of a a series of things to look for if you were visiting and what you can expect to know from uh, looking at walls that are sooted. In other words, that's probably a living space where they had a hearth. If it's not, it's probably some other kind of room where they didn't live. Those types of things which seem obvious if you think about it, but there's probably many visitors who go into places and they don't really think about that question. And sometimes the alcove ceilings were sooted by people who lived there before, or sometimes the walls were sooted by people who were early explorers who came in there uh, in the late 1800s and wanted to dig up artifacts or visit. So they built a fire against the wall and it sooted up the wall. So you have to have a lot of facts to figure those kinds of things out. And there, is, there are some equivocations that everyone has to make when they're looking at those things. But by and large, you're looking at how to make the best guess of what actually happened in that place. And that book uh, by the Sagstetters helps you uh, develop an eye for the best guess. Great. Well, That's great. Thank you. You feel good about it, Charlotte? Anything else you want to ask? No, I think this has been a, a wonderful interview. Thank you so much. Well, you're more than welcome. Uh, I think of Matt as among those people that I had the opportunity to work with, and I'm glad that he's still carrying on some of the stuff that I tried to get started. In fact, he's going to expand upon it, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Larry Nordby today, and we really appreciate your time. Well, it was nice to be with you and appreciate your having me on. So I learned a huge amount from Larry's interview, not having worked um, directly with Larry before. 
And what part of what really strikes me is that even a park archaeologist hired to be in a research program for a park, like they can't do it alone. And that really goes back to um, to a lot of what we've been talking about with partnerships. And Larry's a great example of um, starting partnerships both within and outside of the park service um, with researchers and um, and with other folks, all kind of aimed at better management of the the sites. Um, and really interdisciplinary was the word of the day for his interview. Um, and it brought together archaeology with standing architecture to lead to better management decisions for historic preservation. Right. And, and just to touch on what you've already said, uh, Larry is a great example of one of the very first people who started thinking about combining research, uh, particularly research about ancestral Native American architecture um, with management. So the idea, again, of, of learning as much as you can about an important place so then you can figure out how to best take care of it. Seriously, and that's so important with standing architecture as we um, see, you know, extreme weather events and um, and visitors, you know, high increased visitor use. Um, the standing architecture is kind of the lightning rod for all of that. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to our next episode where we continue this discussion about historic preservation. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Baron Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.